Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast, featuring highlights from a recent Herbert C. Kelman seminar on international conflict analysis and resolution. The seminar features Helen Bowden, current Shorenstein Fellow and Director of BBC Radio, and Anne-Marie Lipinski, curator of the Neiman Foundation for Journalism. They discuss the role of the press and social media in the Brexit referendum and the US presidential election. We begin with Helen Bowden explaining some of the background behind the Brexit votes and the role of the media. So, first of all, how did we get here? Well, I've said the UK unexpectedly voted to leave. Really, it was unexpected to a lot of people in London. Three weeks before um, the vote, uh, the Prime Minister told the Director General of the BBC that it was definitely going to be a vote for Remain. It was going to be 60-40-ish, possibly a bit more, and he, you know, that was it. It was in the bag. As it turned out, it was rather different. I was unsurprised by this. Um, I leave London quite a lot. Um, I'm married to a man from Wigan, who's in the back there, and um, we go and see his family, and we go and see friends and neighbours in the north of England. And none of our friends and neighbours were voting to Remain. Not the working-class friends, not the middle-class friends, not the arty friends. So I would go back to London and tell the Director-General at his um, Monday morning meeting that it was only a focus group of three people or five people or whatever, but this was what was happening. And I could see this sort of look of disbelief sweeping the faces of the Director-General, a lovely man and a very good journalist, and his colleagues. Um, If you were in London, it felt very, very different. Uh, It was called, in my view, rather cynically, this referendum by David Cameron as a purely party political move to offset the impact of UKIP, the UK Independence Party, um, whose leader, or leader then, Nigel Farage, you may have seen in your newspapers because he's quite close, he claims, with Donald Trump. He left immediately after the vote, pretty much, and through a series of extraordinary shenanigans at the top of the Conservative Party, uh, Theresa May, a woman who was underestimated by a lot of people, except those of of us who'd met her, um, who quietly, carefully, dutifully, uh, all the characteristics that she has, uh, put herself in pole position and eventually has become Prime Minister. Um, there was genuinely a period of about two days where you'd nip out for lunch and you'd come out and someone else at the top of the Conservative Party had resigned while you were having lunch. Um, now, why did people vote for Brexit? This is an incredibly difficult um, question to answer and I'm not going to pretend that I've done the research to give you the true answer. Um, There was a very strong feeling from lots of people, again I can give you an anecdote about this, about taking back control. So we have a very dear friend, John, who's uh, middle class in background, artistic by um, training, he was an art teacher and he said he was going to vote leave. And I said, or Steve said, so why is that then? And he said, because enough is enough. And when I said, what do you mean enough is enough? You know, enough peace and prosperity since the end of the Second World War. It was very incoherent what he said, and he's a very clever man. Um, But there was this sense that it had all become too big and too bossy from Europe. Um, There were other things underplaying it. Um, There were some extraordinarily exaggerated claims about £350 million a week 
you could stop paying to the EU and that would go straight into the NHS. People in the UK generally love the NHS. I know that the number of nurses voting to leave went up after this claim. It was then completely disowned by the people who'd made it. Um, the picture of Syrian refugees, uh, we have not actually been overwhelmed by Syrian refugees in the UK, but that clearly touched a nerve. So there was a lot of stuff going on that fed into it. Um, and I think that will be talked about over a long period of time. This is really to tell you what the formal timeline is. Um, at the moment in the House of Lords, the unelected chamber in our parliament, uh, there's quite a strong push to water down some of the Brexit means Brexit talk from Theresa May. And it was interesting that I think last week she did an extraordinarily... Um, move in she's allowed to do this as prime minister but most prime ministers never do it where she went and sat in the house of lords she can't vote she can only sit as the bill was discussed to take us into brexit she was making quite clear that she was not of the elites as the newspaper have described these people um, and this is the current timeline although if you look at 2027 that may happen very very fast but trade deals are notoriously complex to build and they're notoriously complex to unpick um, and I think the idea that we will leave now uh, which a lot of people who voted leave felt very passionately about um, they're going to be somewhat disappointed by the speed of any um, exit strategy because we are tied into a lot of things um, who voted for Brexit so uh, you can, I'm not going to tell you what this is, you can read for yourself. But basically this makes quite clear that uh, the older, less well-educated, less affluent were key in um, taking us out of Europe. And these were people who remembered a time when we weren't in Europe. I mean, I voted not to join the European. It was the first vote I ever um, cast at the age of 18. And I voted not to join the European Union at 18. Uh, I describe myself as a reluctant Remainer um, uh, in this latest vote. But it was interesting. You could not necessarily predict where people were going to be on this timeline. Um, only the highest income group of voters backed Remain. That's not really surprising. I mean, one of the things you may well have learned, and we've certainly learned, is the idea that global <coughs> capitalism has been good for everybody is not true. It may have lowered prices if you're a consumer, but most people are producers as well as consumers. And I think one of the things that the media generally in the UK has not done is reflect the losers in that global capitalism world that's kind of been seen as the norm for at least the last 20 or 30 years. Um, a bit more information. The just about managing is a brilliant phrase that Theresa May's team have come up with. Because actually, she's talking about people on relatively low incomes. Most people think they're just about managing. So she's created a kind of political category of voter that's incredibly broad and deep. Um, and economics wasn't the only consideration. Um, Demographics mattered, culture and geography mattered. And I think if you look at the penultimate point there, the level of immigration didn't seem to matter, but the pace of change over the last decade really did. So if you lived in um, an East Coast or an Eastern rural area where 
um, suddenly you had Polish shops springing up, you could walk down a street as I did this summer at a family wedding and for at least two minutes I didn't hear anything but Polish being spoken. This is unusual in the east of England. Um, you might feel that your country has changed too fast and nobody asked if you wanted it. And so it wasn't places like Birmingham or Manchester or London which actually have high levels of immigration. It was places that had high turnover. Um, there's not been that much information about um, what influenced people in terms of media. Um, at the time of the vote, there was a good um, Institute of Government study that showed how important the BBC was in all of this. Um, social media that was talked about a lot afterwards, actually, we need to be careful about social media. It tends to influence a core of people intensely. But um, increasingly, we're seeing that the stories often come from what we call mainstream media. Um, I think it's interesting, this whole thing about turning to family and friends for information. It's one of the key trends that we've seen throughout the last 10 years in the BBC. Of course, Facebook makes it much easier to find out what your family and friends think. But it's also about the nature of trust. We trust what we know, and we know our family and friends. Um, the newspapers were almost overwhelmingly um, pro-leave, um, and this is entirely about the business agendas, I would argue, of their owners. Uh, Mr Murdoch, who owns The Sun and The Times, is a vehement and public critic of the European Union, which, of course, has often trimmed what he can do in business terms. Um, the Daily Mail, owned by Lord Rothermere, um, I would imagine that comes from a more ideological opposition and a sovereignty argument. Um, the Daily Express is a world unto itself, does mostly weather stories. Um, and the Daily Telegraph is also owned by two multimillionaires who will have worried about the sovereignty issue. The papers, as you can see, that were most pro-remain are those of the what you would call the financial elite, the people who read the Financial Times, and uh, the liberal elite, the people who read The Guardian. Now, those are crude definitions. The demography of all those readership are much more interesting than that. But you can see where they're coming from. Um, the Reuters Institute on the Study of Journalism, which is a bit like the Shorenstein, has done a really, really good um, analysis, which I'll share a bit of. You can get it on their website, where they broke down the articles um, of all the press leading throughout the campaign. So you can see here that the whole thing was really in the newspapers, conservative uh, spokesman versus conservative spokesman, because the Tory party had a huge split within it. Those who uh, wanted the world to go on and believed in the European Union, someone like Ken Clark was you know, one of their key people, and those like uh, Michael Gove or Boris Johnson, who for very different reasons wanted us to leave. Um, again, you can see um, how overwhelming the press in terms of who they spoke to from the campaigns were. Um, and you can see here, I don't know if you can, that is broken down, but basically, uh, the Mail, the Star, and the Express emphasised um, migration as a key topic. This was not new to this campaign. All these papers have, for some time, been talking about the impact of migration within uh, what they regard as an overcrowded country. Mm -hmm. um, 
So coverage varies by title, but it was overall pro-leave. It was a largely blue-on-blue -blue campaign. Um, personalities absolutely prevailed over any issue. I mean, Boris Johnson, who in my heart of hearts, I don't believe was really a leaver, but um, he decided to go with um, leave because it gave him an extraordinary profile. And people love Boris Johnson. He has that quality of um, conviviality and humour. I mean, those who don't like him really don't like him, but he, people just say he's a laugh. He's funny, and actually he is a laugh, and he is funny. Um, I think he's probably in uh, under Mrs May in the most disciplined role he's ever been, and I can see there's sort of one step out of line and he'll be out under her. Um, but I thought this was an interesting uh, study because we tend to think the papers don't make a difference. Actually, they do. Their coverage of this went up. The people who voted were people who vote, read newspapers. They tended to be older. Uh, they always set the agenda. Um, and they were much better at reinforcing the views of decided voters than informing the undecided. And that's an important thing, because we tend to think that social media is the only way you get an echo chamber. Newspapers can be just as much of an echo chamber and always have been. Um, social media, there's been incredibly little done about the impact of social media on the campaign. Lots of people claiming things, and when you dig into them, there's not much evidence there. This was one of the few I've come across. Um, Twitter, with, you know, 140-odd characters, um, plays um, powerfully to very, very simple messages. So, um, again, the leave arguments tended to be more simplistic and more emotional. Um, the Remain campaign, the official campaign, went on a fear campaign. Uh, as somebody watching it relatively from a distance, I thought this was a disaster. And the most disastrous thing, in my personal view, was bringing Barack Obama over to try and persuade us. We don't like being told what to do. That's why a lot of people wanted to leave the European Union. And we certainly don't like being told what to do by Americans. So this could not have been a worse emotional tactic. There was so little emotional literacy, in my personal view, in the, in the Remain campaign. It was quite striking. Um, the BBC, obviously, um, having had that influence for so many people, um, came in for an interesting um, range of feedback. So during the campaign itself, um, the Daily Mail, um, arch critics of the BBC, said, uh, congratulated the BBC on for once being impartial. When the result came in, there was incredibly bitter. I've been really attacked by dear friends who love the BBC who thought we'd completely let down the public um, by what they called false balance. Now, this is to kind of really underestimate the nature of a proper referendum. The BBC had no control over uh, amounts of time, basically as a, a publicly funded broadcaster at the time of an election, you are quite constrained uh, by amounts of time you give. You have to be very careful about the balance of voice that you put on air. You get public money to, at a time of elections, do things quite specifically. Um, equally, it's not down to you who the parties or the campaigns put up to go live on air. So you can see there, the Remain campaign wouldn't field cabinet ministers to rebut leave arguments from prominent conservative leavers. So you had some of your best Remain spokespeople not put on air because the Conservative Party, I suspect because it didn't want to appear divided, didn't want to do that. 
the Labour Party did the most extraordinary campaign. I mean, because Jeremy Corbyn has always been, over many years, hostile to the European Union, he's what we call a Lexiteer, wants to leave from the left, um, he was suddenly in this incredibly difficult position from his own self, which was um, overwhelmingly Labour had been pro-Remain. So what he did is he just ducked the issue. In fact, the only place that he really strongly campaigned was Scotland, and Scotland was overwhelmingly Remain anyway, and everybody knew that. Um, and facts, facts, dear facts, remember them, um, facts... Uh, really were very, very difficult to pin down because this was about something in the future. Um, and so we had, um, you know, George Osborne on the Remain side saying there'll have to be an autumn budget. It will be the severest thing you've ever seen. In fact, our economy has grown in the last two quarters. And you had some of those facts that turned out not to be facts on how much money would be going into the NHS. So it was genuinely very difficult for an impartial broadcaster. I think the broader lessons about the impact of the media is that for 40 years we've had newspapers which may have diminished in that 40 years over uh, in their importance, but for 40, 40 years you've really had newspapers overwhelmingly against the EU and actually you've had people in both the Tory party and the Labour party, only the Lib Dems have been consistent, who've been against it. And that doesn't get reversed in a, a three-month referendum campaign. That's a kind of nonsense. As I said, the older demographic remembered life before the EU, and they just were immune to this fear tactics. That boy George, and that's all he was for them, wasn't going to frighten them. Um, the younger demographic, I think, thought it was all in the bag, didn't come out and vote, voted. You know, I do have a sort of basic belief that you kind of get the government you deserve and they were very upset a lot of them at the end but um, they actually hadn't bothered to register and vote and um, I think for me the most interesting group were the group of people who feel so little investment in because they've really lost out in democracy they almost never vote in local or general elections this was a very clear yes no thing it was a punch in the face for people in London, possibly for immigrants, for the establishment, and they came out and voted. We've just had a by-election in Stoke where the head of UKIP um, did not win when he thought he would win. But actually what for me was really interesting was those people have gone back indoors. They're not voting again. They didn't come out and vote. When it was simple, when it was yes or no, and I feel very powerfully about it, I'm going to come out and vote, and they didn't. And I think that took all the parties, the political parties, by surprise. So an interesting, complex situation, uh, which I think will only get more complicated. Um, you may have seen that um, a rather brave woman um, took um, the government to court over its decision to exclude Parliament from um, uh, any kind of say in um, triggering Article 50, which is how we will eventually get out. Uh, three judges um, upheld her complaint, uh, upheld her case, and the Daily Mail, in a piece of extraordinary intimidation, both personally and politically, called them enemies of the people. That is, in our world, you know, the judiciary is, like it or loathe it, genuinely regarded as impartial. And the intimidatory tactics of the press 
were quite startling and the government was pretty slow on the uptake in defending them. So the story is not over by any means. This one will run and run. I expect it will become one of those things in the end people are literally bored to death by. But um, at this point, it's still very engaging. We now hear from Anne-Marie Lipinski on the election of Donald Trump and the media's reaction to the early days of his presidency. Before I get into a set of... Um, you know, sort of observations about uh, what went wrong and some criticisms um, really about my, my own industry. I'll start with uh, one of the more hopeful things, um, which uh, actually came from former President Obama in his last interview in office, which was a, a podcast he was doing for um, some former White House colleagues of his who, uh, who were doing a do a podcast now, which, by the way, we're doing here. So, um, uh, And in that last interview, he said, in talking about media, he said, my instinct is everybody hates media right now. Everybody knows that the political culture doesn't work. So that, he said, optimistically, has to be an opportunity. Um, and, I, and I do think that's true, and I want you all to keep that in mind um, as we talk about sort of the problems. Um, it's, I think, in the long history of, of journalism, uh, problems often beget solutions and uh, new ways of thinking about um, the work uh, that we do. Uh, I think one of the uh, problems both during the coverage and uh, post, in the coverage pre-election and post-election, is um, that there is a sense that um, you know media failed, um, and and it wasn't so much uh, our failing to predict the outcome of the election, though that was uh, part of it, um, but uh, that it was uh, in preventing uh, Trump's uh, election, and I think that that is. Um, that kind of view is the hubris of ideologues um, and should not be the sentiment or the perspective of real uh, working journalists. Um, the failure really was in, um, our failure was in failing to report what was fully transpiring across this country. And our inability um, to see that and to share that uh, in a way that was compelling uh, to people is really where journalism needs, um, you know, where we need to focus uh, our, our work going um, forward. Um, <clears throat> I, I am going to use as an example, and I've, and I've used this before, and I want to be clear that I'm not just picking on this one institution, but I think this contrast was so, for me, glaring, not, not months later, but at the time. And um, uh, so uh, the example is um, uh, an announcement, which you all may remember, from the Huffington Post uh, in July of uh, 2015. And um, what they announced was this. After watching and listening to Donald Trump since he announced his candidacy for president, we have decided we won't report on Trump's campaign as part of the Huffington Post's political coverage. If you are interested in what the Donald has to say, 
the note went on. You'll find it next to our stories on the Kardashians and the Bachelorette. And uh, this pronouncement by HuffPo got a lot of attention uh, at the time, and, uh, and I'm sure some of you uh, remember that. And one reaction is, wow, the Bachelorette, not even the Bachelor. Um, that's how little uh, regard um, very serious political journalists uh, were giving um, him, but to my mind, more importantly, his voters, or his, his supporters and his potential voters. Um, one month later, in the August edition of uh, the New Yorker magazine, Evan Osnos, who's, um, uh, uh, who used to work for me at the Chicago Tribune, uh, is, a, is an alum of, of, of Harvard, um, published a story uh, about what he called the Confederacy of the Frustrated. Less a constituency, he wrote, than a loose alliance of Americans who say they are betrayed by politicians, victimized by a changing world, and enticed by Trump's insurgency. Uh, the story that Evan wrote um, was based on uh, a summer spent reporting um, across six states in the country uh, following uh, Trump. Um, to various uh, political appearances, uh, but more importantly, a lot of time spent in, in deep conversation with, um, with the people showing up uh, to, to, these, to these rallies. Uh, and what Evan identified in this piece were really all the themes that we now know um, fueled Trump's uh, run uh, and were ripe for harvest by any political journalist, by any journalist. Um, those being, you know, economic despondency, toxic views of, of immigrants, and hunger for what um, Evan called a, t uh, a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. And um, anyone who's been a reporter in this room knows <laughs> that the work that Evan did is kind of the bread and butter, really, for decades of what political um, reporting uh, had been. Um, but parallel to that kind of work, and it had, you know, it, 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 it postured under different names at different, you know, at different institutions. It was Man on the Street, it was Vox Pop. I mean, lots of newsrooms had names for this, but the fact that there were so many names just meant that it was such a standard um, tool in our, in our reporting uh, toolbox. So um, what happened? I mean, why was it that Evan, uh, why was it that I had to, it was, you know, not until August, or it was that one story in August, a month after this Huffington Post announcement, and I just thought, both of these things can't be real. Uh, what Evan is finding, and this hubris on the part of not just Huffington Post, but I think a lot of, a lot of journalists, that this was not a serious campaign, um, and making decisions for the voters. Um, what, what had happened to draw us away from those listening posts that had been um, so common to, to our work? And I think one of the things that happened, of course, was the rise of not just polling, um, which had been with us for a long time, but the aggregation of polling, which gave us this veneer of a new science uh, that aggregating polling was going to smooth out 
uh, whatever problems uh, we had detected or experienced in these, um, you know, in individual polls. And also um, uh, this reliance on big data, which uh, we embraced so fully that we even, you know, capitalized the B and the D. We gave it a very special status um, in, um, in our reporting and in our thinking about what was possible to know. Um, uh, and one of the things that um, Evan said to me um, is not that he had, not to discard polling, of course, he said, but we either need to get better at it or better at ignoring it. Um, but we were not served by the shiny new objects um, that had, um, uh, had been maybe, had offered perhaps more guidance uh, during the um, Obama-Romney uh, uh, campaign, but that utterly uh, failed us this presidential election. And the signs were there before November. And, you know, one of the more glaring being the Michigan primary, right, where um, Clinton was supposed to win, you know, uh, was supposed to walk away. And, of course, Sanders won. And... Um, all of the, um, you know, harumphing and second-guessing and mea culpa-ing that went on the following day by uh, polling aggregators. Um, but those same models that failed, you know, in those individual circumstances um, also would fail us uh, come November. And I thought it was um, sort of pathetic uh, in the aftermath to read the jockeying going on among the people who do this work and basically um, people claiming status if their polling had been less accurate than that, less inaccurate than that of some of their competitors. That really became the pedestal to stand on. Um, some of you may have heard Jill Lepore talk about, give a talk uh, about polling uh, and also do an excellent piece in The New Yorker, uh, but she spoke at Shorenstein um, a year or so ago about the long history of polling and her growing unease with it um, for a lot of reasons. And I, re I highly recommend this talk and this, this piece to you if you're, if you're more interested in this. But simple things like the fact that so few of us have landlines or you know, increasingly few of us um, have, have, have landlines and certainly aren't going to talk to pollsters. We're not going to even answer a phone number that we don't recognize, let alone um, share information uh, with them. And um, she, uh, she reminded us of, a, of an Edward R. Murrow response um, to Eisenhower's defeat of Adlai Stevenson in 1952. And uh, Murrow said, yesterday the people surprised the pollsters the prophets, and the politicians. They are mysterious, and their motives are not to be measured by mechanical means. Um, <clears throat> another thing was this um, kind of uh, the growth of, and it's been happening for a long time, but I think we saw this election in full flower, um, this growth of the kind of, you know, choose your own adventure journalism. Um, you know, another thing that Obama famously said about this was, uh, if I watched Fox News, I wouldn't vote for me either. Um, and I think you, you, know, you saw that playing out, not just as it's been for a while on our Facebook pages and our, our Twitter uh, feeds, um, but uh, 
on what we regard as kind of, you know, the sort of um, staples of, you know, newspapering or, or, um, or, te or television. And um, you could, you know, just choose the kind of um, path that you wanted to go down. Um, and how many of us talked to people or saw on Facebook, and I still see it, um, you know, I've tried watching CNN or I've tried watching Fox News. I gave it a half hour and I just couldn't stand it anymore. And so there is this desire to kind of know what other people are thinking at the same time at war with this intolerance we actually have um, for, uh, for that. And in the middle of this, you know, comes this um, new, uh, you know, a rise of a, 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 of a new force. Um, with something like Breitbart, which was um, up and running with a lot, a lot of readers before, I'm going to guess, a lot of people in this room even knew it existed. Um, just think, think about how recently it probably is for most of you that you've known of Breitbart as a force in our political conversation. But understand that those people that Evan was talking to and that he documented in that story they were quite well aware of it. And um, the editor of Breitbart said, um, talking to the mainstream media, we are building a journalistic enterprise that's designed to replace all of you. Um, and then, of course, Mr. Bannon's uh, comments um, you know, from the White House recently talking, talking to journalists. And he uh, referred to the media as the opposition uh, party. Another thing that, I, uh, that I've been thinking a lot about, and um, I'll credit uh, a recent Neiman fellow, um, Isaac Bailey, uh, who was in Hassett's class uh, recently. And um, one of the things that, um, that I've learned from Isaac is um, he, he's had this growing concern, which he's written a lot about on Facebook, especially. Um, he's a, a columnist and an editorial writer. And that is um, journalism's um, uh, focus on its, you know, on its kind of uh, uh, its its historic obligations. Sometimes um, lead us away from stories about explaining how things and when things work. And I don't mean just that kind of, you know, sappy good news. You know, where's the good news in the newspaper? Uh, certainly, a question I got. Um, uh, in the years that I ran a, news, a newspaper, but I mean actual substantive documentation of when things are systematically actually uh, working. And an example of this was a story Isaac posted on Facebook of, um, of a uh, program in, uh, in, in Myrtle Beach where he lives um, that had him, um, a father of, of two children, serving as a mentor to a young girl in the juvenile uh, court system. And it was this beautiful picture of Isaac with this girl and the judge and her foster parents. And she had, um, she was sort of, she was succeeding beyond expectations um, because of this, this intervention that had been created in her community and um, a judge's uh, goodwill and Isaac's um, volunteer work. And 
Um, again, it was not just a story about look at me and look at this, you know, not just an anecdotal story, but a story about how a system had been disrupted and was being changed and was having some effective r results. And as I thought about Isaac's, you know, his, um, his repetition of this theme, I thought, you know, a question for me is whether journalism um, had a role in painting a portrait of a nation in need of being made great again. Um, and was, you know, have, did we contribute to a refrain that was uh, accurate, but only narrowly so, and not fully descriptive of what was happening in the government or uh, in our um, communities? Another thing that um, has been happening for a long time, but I think was in uh, again in just full flower uh, this this election season, um, was the rise of punditry um, relative to reporting. Mm -hmm. And um, think about the news, the the television news shows that you or cable news shows that you uh, watched, and actually count. <laughs> the reporters versus the commentators, many of whom were paid political consultants 10 minutes ago, or still. And have we settled for a kind of, um, you know, uh, have we formalized opinion as reporting, and what have we lost in that arrangement? Um, you know, often these presenters are, uh, you know, more glib and more facile, certainly than the average city hall reporter that I ever employed. Um, but that doesn't mean that the journalism, it doesn't mean it's a journalism, or that it's more substantive than what we've replaced it with, or as substantive as we need, uh, as we, as a nation needs to make um, decisions, and I, this is my sort of one little soapbox, I feel so strongly about this, you know, the, the founders had this amazing idea that um, the people are sovereign, but that only works if they're informed. Uh, and are we informed or are we more, um, you know, uh, incited or animated? Um, uh, uh, and have we, you know, what have we lost in that? Um, and part of that punditry, of course, I think is connected to the polling, um, where it's just that the results are a lot flashier, um, a little less substance. And it's worth noting that um, this uh, you know, reporting expertise, again, as we lost more and more of that and replaced it with punditry and uh, with polling, which looked like expertise, um, that for the first time this election, polls were actually used to winnow the field of candidates eligible to participate in the televised debates, uh, in the primary debates, and furthermore, to decide where they would stand on the stage. So just, I mean, just think about that and think about whether that's the kind of you know, environment we want to make decisions in. Um, Go, going forward, I think um, if, if, if you're reading a news report or if you're working in a newsroom where you're organized as you were in November and where you're getting you know, the same journalists reporting on the same stories, 
um, we have learned nothing. <laughs> and we journalists are failing you. The industry is failing you. And you need to demand better uh, of, of us. And I think uh, one of the things that is really um, crucial to do and I, that I'm not um, that I've not seen uh, happen yet, is I think we need to take the drama of the White House out of the center. I'm not saying to not report on what happens in the briefing room, but our obsession over who gets in, over you know whether it's going to be there in the old executive building, um, is uh, over who's going to the White House correspondence dinner. Are we having it? Are we not? Um, is so beneath, uh, is so beneath us, and I think what we uh, what we deserve. So here's you know just a couple of, of examples. Um, the Washington Post recently did a lot of reorganizing of their beats, which I really admire, and they've created here just two that you never you we didn't hear before, but we didn't have them, but that they now think are important. They've created a, a grievance beat, and they've created a beat. Um, for someone to report on rural versus urban America. Um, and I don't know what stories are going to come from those and whether those beats will exist in a year. Um, but it's the evidence to me of editors th rethinking how they do their job and, how, and what kind of news and information um, we're going to get. Uh, it's just uh, we'll find out, right? I, I don't, this is this is you know early innings, like entering the first inning. Um, I'm just uh, I'm pointing to it as evidence of people really trying to think differently, and I think we'll we'll see we'll see what fruits um, this bears. I also wanted to mention um, something I've learned from Danielle Allen, who runs the Safra Center. And she, and, and I think this is something really for journalists to focus on, and it's her identifying that we're, um, I mean, this is Danielle, who's a great classicist, right? And she's identifying a shift in our culture from, um, uh, uh, from a, uh, that we're transitioning from a text-based culture to an oral culture. And she's not casting judgment on this, um, and in fact is, you know, very high on what, uh, you know, ancient Athens did with an oral culture. Um, but she noticed, she writes an op-ed column for the Washington Post, along with teaching here and doing her research. And she um, descri has described during the election how she would um, go to the Clinton and the Trump websites looking for more information about, you know, let's say housing policy. And she'd go to Clinton's, and it was chock-a-block full of a lot of text and a lot of policy papers. And she'd go to Trump's, and without fail, there'd be no text. And it would be a very short, maybe one-minute video of him talking into the camera. He, you know, give him full credit for, um, you know, in, in Danielle's view, identifying a change in the culture that his campaign fully exploited. And so Danielle, who's you know, an academic and a researcher, finds herself making herself do more of that in her work and not leaving text, but also finding other ways to communicate through video on YouTube um, with, uh, 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 with, potential with a potential audience that she would otherwise um, miss. Um, I. Uh, Hannah Rent is very popular again these days, not that she's ever gone out of fashion. Um, 
But I've been really thinking about this one quote of hers, uh, one of the greatest advantages of the totalitarian elites of the 20s and 30s was to turn any statement of fact into a question of motive. And I would ask us all um, to really keep that in mind. I think it's something journalists have been feeling in the extreme uh, in, in recent months. But I think it's, um, that's one, um, uh, in journalism's defense of its work, journalists' defense of, of their work, um, it's a thin line between you know, marketing and um, really um, speaking for the republic. And again, my, my soapbox about the importance of being fully, uh, fully informed. And so um, I would say that the work of journalists uh, on all of these fronts um, will only succeed with the help of, of everybody else. It's not just, these are not just changes or it's not just an awareness um, that can be owned um, by, by us. Um, I'm going to skip over, I have a lot of thoughts about uh, search and social media and maybe it's something we'll come back to, um, but I think that there are huge, huge um, questions uh, to be asked and answered uh, uh, about that and if you, if, if you have uh, a spare minute, go to Google and uh, just say, did the Holocaust happen? And see, see, what, you, see what you experience. They claim they've changed that. Um, they haven't. Because that one was outed so outrageously and, and, um, and documented so well by The Guardian. Yeah. Um, but, you know, pick another. <laughs> pick another uh, topic. Um, I, uh, so let me just see here. I, uh, I, I also, maybe I'll just end on this, on this point. Um, uh, I, I, I also want to stress that um, what is before us is not unprecedented, <clears throat> right? It, it is maybe in modern times or in some of our lifetimes, depending on how old you are. Um, but um, also for uh, credit to, to, to Jill Laporche, uh, I was inspired by some comments of hers recently to go um, uh, read some correspondence from uh, Thomas Jefferson to a newspaper publisher um, who had asked his advice, and it was scathing. Um, he wrote, nothing can now be believed which is seen in a newspaper. Truth itself becomes suspicious by being put into that polluted vehicle. Um, and he said, really, the only path he could imagine to reformation um, was to divide the paper into four sections, call them truths, section one, section two, probabilities, section three, possibilities, and section four, lies, uh, and it, which he thought would be the largest of the sections. And, and it's just a reminder, I think, to all of us um, uh, that official disdain for journalism um, has been a, a strong component <laughs> of democracy <laughs> in this country uh, a, 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 as long as anyone can remember or as long this, as the historians um, can, can document. I think, so I think it's important to remember that that's just part of that is business as usual. And we need to focus on what is different about this period for journalism. Certainly the tools available to us are very different. Certainly these claims uh, by Jefferson were heard by, I don't know, you know, maybe just this uh, gentleman, the, this publisher, John Norvell, and by nobody else until historians um, unearthed uh, these, uh, these documents. 
Um, but I do think that uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a reminder to me um, to, uh, to, 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 to calm down some and um, to really focus, to really, really focus on the work, by which I mean don't take the bait. Um, we are not the enemy of the people. But it doesn't matter if I you know, climb to the top of Sanders and shout that at the top of my uh, lungs, which wouldn't be very loud with this cold. But um, even, even so, it's, um, it's, uh, it, it, it's, not, it's not an effective way of, um, of bringing journalism through this period. Um, and I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah, thank you, Anne-Marie. That was great. Is there anything you would yes, like to I think there's a really important dimension that neither of us have really mentioned only by implication, and that's economics. So one of the things we have more punditry in all our engagements is because it's much cheaper than sending someone out to report. Um, and that, I think, is going to be um, a consistent problem going forward. The economic models for most commercially funded journalism are under massive strain. It's much cheaper to get people opining in a studio than it is to actually go and spend the hours talking to people. And I think that's one of the things that journalism across the piece is going to have to deal with. And it's not easy to see a way forward with that. Um, I think the person who said to you um, how... You see, I think journalism's terribly romantic about its holding to account business and very lazy about actually telling people what's going on. And I think that issue of how things and when things work is something we almost duck because it's much not easier but it's much more we see as part of our job and we see ourselves as fighting the good fight when we're holding bad people to account actually lots of perfectly good people do good policy things and and not just in the voluntary sector that we just don't see as part of our beat um in denmark there's a very, very badly phrased but very interesting journalistic school coming from the Danish broadcast, public service broadcasting, which they call positive journalism, which will make you and I go, mm, because it's, it implies stories about kittens and good news and all the rest of it. Actually, it's a very sophisticated editor who started to look at some proper data. And one of the things, for example, this is a small story, he noticed that no one had been killed on the road in Copenhagen for the last five years. That is a pretty good story. That's a good story because it means children aren't running into the road, cars are going slower, cyclists aren't getting knocked off. It's also the kind of story people love because it's about their world. So he's begun over the last 18 months not to turn the news round, but to actually seek out evidence-based stories of things in the public realm that actually work. And it's been incredibly popular because it doesn't come over as positive in a saccharine sense. It comes over as telling you, as a citizen, not everything is rubbish. Because there's a massive dissonance in most journalism. If you listen to the news, you really want to go out and hang yourself. It's so, you know, it's so depressing. And yet most people, say, for example, in the, um, in the UK, they may think the NHS is going to hell in a basket because it's underfunded, but they love their hospital. They love their doctor. So there's this dissonance that journalism um, 
constantly, to my frustration, and I can feel to yours, doesn't quite get. And it's partly, I think, some of the myths we tell ourselves. So disdain for journalists is entirely reprehensible, although the levels of disdain we in the Western democracies endure is minimal compared to most of our international colleagues. I was talking to some African journalists today. But actually, we have to be aware of disdain for all our audiences because you can love an audience that agrees with you but on either side or on every side of the political spectrum, to be genuinely interested and respectful in those who do not take your political position is the real challenge. Mm -hmm. And I think journalists find that very hard. I've been quite, I mean, I come here, I've only been here for five weeks, and I wish it, we were staying here longer because I find it so fascinating. And the thing that shocked me most is this sense of the elite and the people, mm -hmm. because I thought that went out with the French Revolution. <laughs> and... Um, and it's not, I don't think anyone's to blame from it, but the level of mm -hmm. polarisation, if you come from another country, I don't know, there's international colleagues here, including a dear BBC colleague up there. It's very striking, isn't it? We were talking about it before. How, um, and so I think going forward, one of the great things about journalism, it does have the potential to bridge, build bridges. I worry in this country that there's no shared space where those bridges can be built that it's got so polarised, so fast and so extremely. I mean, apart from sport, I can't think of a media moment when all sorts of people get together. But maybe I'm wrong. No, I, and, I, and I think, I was, as you were talking, I actually was thinking about um, athletics. And as a Patriots fan, I experience that the world hates me. Um, <laughs> but that's cool. You know, it's a friendly rivalry. Yeah. Versus, um, I mean, I had a, you know, I had a beloved cousin, cousin unfriend me on Facebook. Oh, I mean, in the middle of the campaign, and I, and I know, and I know that this, and I wasn't even like posting yeah. a lot about that, but it was just, um, I, I think, uh, I, I think the level of discourse um, is, and and social media have not, um, well, I, I don't want to say they've contributed to it. I just think. Um, Things are more evident that were more um, subterranean. Yeah, I think that's so it's not necessarily that people are holding views, um, you know, more extreme than they once held. I don't know that. It, it may be, but I think what we do know now, uh, because we're we can read it and share it yeah. uh, and be berated for it, um, is just this sort of abundant, you know, the overabundance of commentary on everything. I mean. I thought, you know, I thought, uh, I thought Oscar's Twitter last night was vicious. Mm. I don't know how many of you were following that, but um, you know, we'll, maybe the has ha has the world gotten to the bottom of how the mistake was made? I don't I don't know if that's happened this but afternoon. Do you know who really cares? But I thought the I thought the level of hostility, along with comedy. I mean, it's also very fun. You know, some of the commentary was very funny, but. Um, there's just uh, there's a, there's an ugliness about our need to criticize and but do you uh, think provoke. that's new or is it just because one of it's the things it's just that's public been, now exactly. it's just out it's, there but it's also you can do it in an almost anonymous form we can't put you know we can't pan, the lid is off Pandora's box but it, the Brexit thing has been fascinating because the levels of personal viciousness the same thing and the numbers of relationships that have bust up friendships broken forever. 
you know, relatives not talking. A friend of mine said she went to a dinner party recently and the hostess said, we're not going to talk about Brexit because I know that it'll end up in a terrible, vicious fright. The ability to have a conversation where we disagree without it becoming intensely personal seems to have disappeared. And that must be something to do with the, the delight of anger that social media encourages. Because we all love outraged indignation is one of those great feelings, isn't it? And you can let it go on and on and on with social media. So the challenge for journalism then is how to, I mean, if we understand that, how do we navigate exactly. those waters? And, it, and again, going back to the difference between that Huffington Post post mm. and the New Yorker article, one being a deep search for, for meaning and understanding um, and the other being a rejection from a, from journalists, a rejection and of, a disdainful rejection. Yeah, and I, that in the long run is mm. will never ever ever serve our craft. The Herbert C. Kalman Seminar on International Conflict Analysis and Resolution is sponsored by the Programme on Negotiation at Harvard Law School, the Neiman Foundation for Journalism, the Weatherhead Centre for International Affairs, and the Shorenstein Centre on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.